Merry Christmas, and welcome back to Forefront 360. I'm Nate Mancini, one of the founders of Forefront, and I'm very excited to welcome you to the second act of our Christmas variety show. This was produced in collaboration with Browncroft Church and the Why God Why podcast, so it is once again hosted by our friend Peter Englert. We hope this show brings you much joy and hope in the Lord as you listen during this Christmas season. Act 2 begins with more music from Victoria Moore's Jazz Combo. Thank you. 
Thank you. And next, we will be playing the Christmas song. I'm just going to I'm just going to play a couple notes on my saxophone and make sure it's working. Thank you. Three, four. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Your tired carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow. Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly And so simple phrase to kiss from one to ninety-two although it's been said many times many ways Merry Christmas to Reindeer really know 
how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kiss from one to ninety-two Although it's been said many times Many ways, Merry Christmas to Welcome to the second part of our Why God Why with Forefront. We're collaborating for a Christmas variety show. We're thankful you're part of the second episode. I am here with the wonderful, illustrious Victoria Moore. Give it up for Victoria Moore. Thank you. <laughs> and this is Sean, um, who's co-hosting this conversation from Forefront. Uh, Victoria, I'm a huge fan of you even before I heard your music because I heard that you're in mental health and my wife is in mental health. So it's yes. a huge one. <laughs> so I'm actually, um, I am a music therapist and I know a lot of people actually associate that with mental health. Right now though, I'm actually doing more work in special education. Okay. I do work on some social emotional goals, um, but I definitely, I still have a heart for, you know, mental health. Um, but I haven't been able to get into too much of that work right now. But um, uh, I do still um, have a heart for that type of work. So, Well, thanks for yes. sharing that. <laughs> Let me just uh, start our conversation. We're talking about hope. And something that I find very wild as a pastor at a church and even as I talk to people is like Christmas music doesn't go away. We sing the same songs. Some musicians love that. Some musicians hate it. But, like, it's all about the same music. What do you think about that? And why mm. is that? Yes. I think, hmm, I think it just kind of has to deal with just how much as humans we crave that, as we were talking about before, the nostalgia and just, um, you know, during this time of year, I know I'm going to hear this type of music. And I think as human beings, we just crave that nostalgic feeling. And um, yeah. As I was kind of hearing the evening uh, playing out, I, I was I was interested in this, this thing that we're doing where we keep coming back to hope, um, but we're doing it from a variety of angles, right? And yes. um, it... it struck me how deep of a well this this sort of single word hope is. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about what the work that you're doing with music therapy and, and if you could elaborate specifically on the kind of work that you're doing, that'd be great. But what the work that you're doing with um, music therapy, uh, how that gives you resources uh, to talk about hope, to introduce hope into people's lives, mm -hmm. um, that'd be interesting to, to hear a little bit about. Yes, definitely. So as a music therapist, right now I currently work with um, mostly individuals with special needs, uh, mostly kids. Um, and so I'm using music to help them reach um, various goals, communication, social, emotional, academic, cognitive. Um, and so I'm in and out of the schools doing that. I go into homes and I do that. Um, and I've definitely seen, especially through the pandemic, 
um, just how music um, gives people hope. And especially the work that I'm doing, I'm working with families and, um, you know, I, I work with a lot of kids and so with special needs. And so um, I think as a therapist, I'm giving those families hope that their child has just so much potential. And it's just amazing to see um, how the music really is able to bring out these kids' personalities and their strengths. And um, they're able to shine in music therapy where maybe in a different setting and maybe just in a regular classroom setting or in a different setting, you wouldn't be able to see some of the skills that they're able to do when music is utilized in a therapeutic way. And so I feel like the work that I'm doing is giving families hope and it's giving their teachers hope um, that um, these kids will be able to have the most abundant life possible and that they have the potential to do so much and to um, to grow and to um, just gain more skills. And so... Is there a side of that for you as well, that there's a sort of um, an arc or like a, you know, maybe over the course of a year or even with one of your, uh, the students that you're working with, is there a way that the work that you're doing, the, the hope that you're helping to cultivate in them is, is coming back and working on you at all? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I definitely feel that a lot where um, just seeing the students that I work with and seeing them shine in music therapy, it, it gives me hope as well that what I'm doing is making a difference and um, that everything I work towards, you know, as to become a music therapist is actually making a difference. And so um, I'm definitely, I feel very grateful to, to do the work that I do. How does, uh, how does faith inform the work that you do? Yes. Um, well, I see it as I, I believe God, we're all created in God's image. And so God values people and the work that I do is with people. And so, um, and honest, honestly with people that some people may, may not see any value in them, unfortunately, um, in the evil world that we live in, um, some people may, say, oh, because they have a disability, they're not going to be able to do anything in life or um, might ha- they might have that mindset, unfortunately and sadly. Um, but I know that as a believer, we're all created in the image of God. And these children, these individuals that I work with, they're created in God's image. And I see God in them, you know, and they minister to me as I am um, doing therapy with them, just seeing their beautiful personalities and um, their their gifts come out in, with the music. And so, hmm. yeah. Well, let's, let's close with this question, uh, the question that we're asking everybody. Why does Christmas give you, still give you hope? Yes. Um, just, it gives me hope because I know that, like we were talking about before, God came down to us and met us at our level and he is with us. He's, it gives me hope because I know that God is still present with us and there's a hope. We have eternal hope in him because 
Jesus was born because of Christmas, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We have eternal hope knowing that all the crazy suffering and evil and in this world that and all the things we go through that are just hard on this earth, we have hope in heaven to be with him. And it's just amazing, as we're talking about before, that God, he came to us and he met us where we were we're at um, and walked this earth, suffered just as we did. So we can, he can relate to us. So um, I just have the hope that God is near and God is present and the hope of eternity as well. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. So uh, can we give Victoria a hand in the band? Next up with a short story is Kyle Navratel. My story will not be fiction. Um, It will be about an experience I had with my father while we were uh, in Nepal. The title of the story is Into Base Camp. Tick, tick, tick. I paced behind my dad as he pecked the rocky trail with his aluminum trekking poles, flicking up gray dust with every stab. I jabbed into the earth, too, filtering the mountain dust of Nepal through a red and white krama wrapped around my face. Lukla to Pakting, Namche, Dingboche, Dingboche, Lobuche, Gorkshep, and now Everest Base Camp. Eight days and 40 miles of trekking higher and higher into the Himalayan region. I dug my poles into the loose sand and thrust myself forward, feeling the muscles squeeze and ache behind my shoulders. My dad drifted his gait towards a flat boulder and stopped. Reaching behind him with one hand to brace himself, he leaned forward and squatted a quarter of the way down slowly. Then he dropped himself hard onto the natural ledge and sat slumped over his walking poles. Our guide, Suman, sat beside him and said, My father, my father. He motioned me with his hand, and I unclipped the the chest strap of my pack and slung it to my feet. The sweat on my back stung in the cold air as I handed my dad an algae bottle. Is that better, my father? Suman asked. He pronounces it like father, and he calls me his brother. Suman was only a few years older than me, in his mid-twenties. He kept his bronze face hidden from the wind with a sky-blue scarf wrapped around his neck, and he shielded his tired eyes with a pair of cheap sunglasses. My dad and I had come to love Suman in the two weeks that we knew him. He was more than our trekking guide. He cared for my dad like his own and he would follow behind him on the steeper parts of the trail with his arms frozen, half extended, and his fingers splayed and ready at any moment to snatch my dad from tumbling to his death. My dad referred to Suman as as his son. How you doing, Dad? I asked. He was out of breath, sipping water between slow and deep gasps. Three quarters of his unshaven face was cast into the shadow of a dark brown Stetson, and he stared forward through a pair of Ray-Bans. He swiveled his head and gazed at the dozens of white peaks zagging into the blue sky. Wispy clouds curled above us in twist and slow motion with the wind. I'm okay, he said. Suman looked at us. Tomorrow we have a long hike. Coming from base camp, I asked. For Suman to say that we had a long hike meant that it was longer today than today, over 12 hours. We sleep in Gorkship, he said. Then it's three days down to Lukla. Suman looked to the cluster of neon orange yurts speckling the white horizon. A blur of tiny dots huddled at the bottom of the rocky valley and sat perched at the bottom of the Kumbu Glacier. I questioned if my dad was going to make it that far. 
He looked around himself at the desolate space of rock and sky and said, It's like the moon. Hundreds of miles of uninhabitable landscape scrawled before us, only accessible to the Sherpas and the oxygen-dependent tourists. We were far behind the tree, beyond the tree line at this point, and, he had passed, and we had passed the Glacier River a few hours prior, a whooshing stream of melted snow trickling down thousands of feet from our elevation into the blooming flowers and singing birds below us in the warm Nepalese spring. At this altitude, though, we were the only life. We'd followed that river the whole way, trekking over the churning water on steel suspension bridges lined with thousands of Buddhist prayer flags flapping in the wind. At the entrance to each village, my dad would follow Suman in spinning the wooden prayer wheels engraved with some mantra in Nepalese script. Crude red arrows were spray-painted, indicating the proper direction to turn those massive barrels of divine intercession. Neither of them practiced Buddhism, but my dad often talks of the ego. It's his version of synchronizing the Eightfold Path and the denial of the Freudian self. That's what killed them, you know. He said on the day that we passed the concrete memorials of Rob Hall and those who died in the 1996 expedition, you get so close and think, man, I can make that. But it kills you. We're almost a base camp, Suman said, still looking at the tiny yurts in the distance, but only a few hours of sunlight left. 63 years old and 18,000 feet above sea level, my dad squeezed his walking poles and leaned forward again groaning as he hoisted himself to his feet. He tottered back and forth and then started forward, hopping from rock to rock over chasms wide enough to trap a leg and snap an ankle. But Suman was close behind, his osprey backpack stamped with the emblem of outstretched wings. As my dad bobbled his way over the rocks, we passed miniature stone monuments engineered on the side of the trail. Look, I said, gesturing towards one that stood miraculously still. Stone top balanced on its tip like an inverted pyramid protruding upward in defying gravity. My dad smiled. I see. I don't know how they do that. Me either, he said. His voice was more frail than I had ever heard. We were suffocating from the elevation. Sleeping was like constantly falling in a dream, suddenly snapped awake by your own gasping for air. The deprivation of rest and oxygen caused headaches that we remedied by guzzling handfuls of ibuprofen with our morning coffee. But the drugs couldn't move us forward. My dad walked at the pace of a baby's crawl. There it is, Suman said, pointing across the valley. Between two snowy peaks, the summit of Mount Everest jut upward into the sky. A gray haze lightly brushed over the solid black rock, speckled in white snow. I leapt up onto a ridge to see better and photograph the mountain, while my dad hobbled to an outcropping of stone large enough to sit on. The cold air swept across our faces and rippled my jacket. Toward base camp, I could see individual tents now, only a half a mile away. My dad sat and he stared at Everest with his head tilted back and his shoulders rising and falling with every breath. He had told me once that he dreamed of climbing Everest. When he was a boy, and I can see him now, with that same awe staring at a colorful print of a 1960s National Geographic issue, imagining himself in the picture beside Tenzing and Hillary standing atop the summit. An expansive blue sky behind him, a brown cloth skull cap on his head, with a pair of leather-bound goggles encircling his eyes, and the thrill of escaping his own father, who beat him 
and told him he was worthless. When we went into public, he said, call me Ron. Can you imagine that, Kyle? If I said not to call me Dad? I met Ron a few times, three to be exact. I still have a picture from when I was a little boy, and my tiny body was dwarfed beside the height and width of Ron's frame. A black Stetson on his head, and his eyes peering at the camera through a pair of dark sunglasses. I squinted and smiled wearing a Superman shirt. At that time, I did not know that he had abandoned my dad as a little boy. Maybe Ron had his own mountain to climb, and he chose to do it alone. I also met Ron the summer after I had graduated high school. My dad and I flew to Colorado together, and we drove through the Rocky Mountains to see Ron at his home in New Mexico. I remember the excitement of seeing snow-capped mountains for the first time in my life. Look, I said, pointing out the window of a rental car. My dad looked at me with his smile and extension of my own. Ron hugged me when I saw him. Kyle, he said, you're so big. It seemed a surprise to him that little boys grew up. I have a picture from that day, too. My arm around Ron and my dad's arm around me. I was taller than both of them by now. I never knew Ron as any more than a collection of stories of selfishness. And to this day, I can really only see and remember him through pictures. He scarcely called, and we never celebrated a single holiday together. In the end, Ron died alone on a hospital bed in New Mexico, complaining of incompetent immigrant doctors and the Jews. In the last conversation we had before he died, I asked him if he believed in God. You know, Kyle, I do in my own kind of way. I think it's a real quick life we live, and of course, there has to be something out there. I believe in the warmth that passed on from me and your grandmother to your father and the heat now that has passed on to you. We all have the same warmth of our earliest ancestors. I guess I believe in that. We needed the heat that day in Nepal. The sun had set behind Kalapathar and cast a cold shadow over the trail. The silhouettes across the valley were growing longer, flooding the glacier with darkness as the sun set. My dad, still transfixed on the peak of Everest, said, I think I'm going to stay here. You guys... You go down into base camp. Are you sure? I asked. Yeah, yeah, you go ahead. It's going to take me two hours to do what you can do in 20 minutes. He didn't want to be a burden on us, and I knew that he was right. If he went down into base camp, he might not make it back. Our hike would extend into the night, and darkness would hide those gaps between the stones, and he was already unsteady. I asked him again, do you really want us to go ahead? He nodded and kept his gaze at Everest. We won't be long, I said. Maybe my dad felt the same feeling that he had going into public with Ron. Like we didn't want him there, or maybe, maybe he just wanted to act out the humility to the, that he saw missing in those dying in their attempt to summer at Everest with Rob Hall. But honestly, I think that my dad just wanted his moment with the mountain. I think that he wanted to feel the weight of a 50-year-old dream come to life and lived through his sons trotting down a dusty trail. Maybe he didn't dream of Mount Everest as an escape from Ron, but uh, as the hope for something meaningful to do with him. We were in Nepal the year after Ron died, and while I sometimes wonder if my dad wished Ron could have been there with us, what I do know is that my dad was far more grateful to be there with his son.
Suman and I left my dad to sprint the rest of the way into base camp, and our feet delicately maneuvered over the rocks, carrying us with swift strides the final hundred meters into the valley. Our pace slowed to a light jog as a sharp breathlessness and headache leached our energy. We walked up to a giant boulder painted in primitive red letters, Everest Base Camp, elevation 5,500 meters. A lifeless and inert piece of earth given special significance for its location. I had made it to base camp, but why? This rock didn't mean anything to me. It was never my dream to be here as a boy. I felt that we had come to Nepal because I made a joke about climbing Everest and my dad had taken it seriously. I'd nearly forgotten the joke when he peered at me from behind his laptop and said, Kyle, it's $50,000 for permits and oxygen to climb to the summit, but I think we can make it to base camp. And six months later, here I stood beside a giant rock while Suman took my picture. And standing there, I felt panic, and it riveted my soul with an overwhelming urge to sprint back to my dad and sit with him and stare at Everest. We had made it. And all that I wanted was to sit with him on that outcropping a stiff rock and to breathe in that thin air with my arm around him and tell him that I love him. You want to go back to your father? Suman asked. Yes, I said, moving toward the trail. We were at base camp for less than two minutes. My dad was still staring at the black peak and enjoying the final rays of sunshine when we walked up. He likes to su- call it Sagarmatha, the true Nepalese name. He, st- he stared in contentment with a grin despite his utter exhaustion, his camera dangling around his neck. I took some pictures of you guys running down there. I couldn't tell if he regretted staying, but I knew that he had his time with the mountain. Honestly, it wasn't anything special, I said, and I meant it. For the two hours back to Gorakshep, Suman and I followed behind my dad one step at a time as he shuffled forward, using his poles as independent walkers. When we finally arrived safely to the hostel, my dad sat across from me on his cot. He lay his Stetson under the covers, and he braced his elbows against his knees. His hands hung limp. With an airy breath, he asked, I made it to base camp, right? He wasn't speaking about physically standing beside that boulder and taking a picture. He wanted reassurance of the fact that he had been there for all 22 years of my life, every Christmas, every birthday, and every Monday in between. We had hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and now we were in Nepal. We had stared in exhausted awe at Sagarmatha together. The past two weeks, we had spent every night sipping little cups of hot tea beside iron furnaces in a dozen dozen flimsy-built hostels, laughing and crying through passionate conversations about God and Nepal and our family. And it was on one of those nights, from behind a steaming cup of tea, that he took a long breath and he told me about his father's command to always call him Ron. So when he asked me the question, I didn't hesitate to answer. Dad, of course you made it into base camp. Thank you. So as, as a quick postscript, um, when Nate first asked me if I was interested in reading this evening, and he told me that the theme was Christmas, 
I did not think that I had anything for him. And I have not written any jolly Christmas poems or merry short stories about the incarnation. But I knew about this piece. And this piece was written from such an intimate place in my heart that the gratitude that I express in it uh, to my dad is nothing short of a type of love and gratitude that I personally have for Christ and our family of faith through him. Um, well, this short, short story is about my dad. Uh, the Christmas story that we share is about our Heavenly Father and his son, Jesus Christ. This Christmas season, I am grateful that our God is not an impersonal force, as my grandfather said, that it's, it's activated through the turning of some wheel or just bodily warmth, uh, but is instead a God that is living and loving toward his children. And as the scriptures said, say, this God, our God, he fills us with the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, not just dad, but Abba, Father. And I just want to, I want to praise our heavenly father, our heavenly dad, and our only true Abba, and also his son, Jesus, uh, whose birth we commemorate this Christmas season. Mm. Um, in our short discussion, here's what I want to ask you. Unfortunately, your parents are here. The beauty my of parents might recording. be watching. So yeah. not everybody that hears that story has a relationship with your dad. There's yeah. probably more Rons. Mm-hmm. What would you want to say to them? What would I want to say to the Rons in particular? Or, no, the, the or kids of the Rons. The kids of the Rons. I think what I would like to say is that um, there's absolutely no parent who's perfect. I am not a parent by any stretch of the means. Um, I, I'm a coach. I like to pour into my nephews and my nieces, but I'm not a parent. And I know the flaws that I have. And I can only imagine that they're not going to change if I had a kid. Um, but what I will say is that um, as we think back to uh, perhaps the flaws and, and, and sins and, and pure malevolence at times of perhaps our parents or our grandparents, I think that what we have to recognize is that um, we should, as adults hopefully now, be able to contextualize that in a, a greater story and contextualize that not just to the pain that we experienced, but uh, to be able to recognize that that does not mean that we should perceive God as a father in that way, and that we should be able to look at them uh, beyond the category of parent or provider and see them also as a fallen, struggling human being, um, even if they're saved. Yeah. One of the things, this might have become clear to you in the past uh, minute or so, but Kyle is one of the most on fire for Jesus, people that I know, and praise God for that. Um, love you, man. And I think, you know, you're in a family where your family are, are not believers, and uh, you are in a, in mm-hmm. a big way. Yeah. And so it's almost like you have these two competing Christmases, right, where there's like the Christmas yes. of the past without Christ and the Christmas of the present where you, you want to be glorifying Jesus. And I just wonder if you could talk about that dichotomy and, and what Christmas is like for you now. Yes, absolutely. I love you too, man. Thank you. Thanks, um, so as Nate said, um, I am the only Christian in my immediate family and I have three brothers and a sister and my parents, uh, both of whom I, I love very dearly and I will be spending uh, some time with them this Christmas season. But because of the difference in the way that um, I think true born-again Christians look at, at Christmas as a time of uh, genuine joy and celebration in, of the life of Jesus, uh, the difference in what my family does is that we just kind of go through the motions. I think we, we talked earlier about, um, I think Cody mentioned that 
his hope, maybe at times as a kid for Christmas, wasn't rightly placed. It was in things like presents or maybe having a week off from school. But um, the dichotomy emerges when, as I engage with my family around Christmas time, I have to remember the words of Christ who says, who are my family? Who's, who are my mother and my brothers, but those who hear the words of God and obey them? And this is something that I have wrestled with and I struggle with a lot because it is, uh, it's a bold claim. That's a bold, bold claim. And as I love Jesus and I love his word, I want to obey it in all things, which means that as I, as I enter into the Christmas season and I go to spend time with my family, I have to recognize that it's not just my, uh, my earthly father, my earthly mother, my earthly siblings, but I have to spend time with the family of God. So what emerges is the, the distinction between what I celebrate. And I, I spend time with my family, and we do. We, in, we enjoy each other's company. We open up presents. We have a blast. Uh, but I recognize that that is this very, very dim reflection, very dim kind of uh, common grace that God provides to a culture that is influenced by Christianity. Well, my family doesn't recognize uh, the origin of why we're able to have gratitude and celebrate things. Uh, I get to engage in that with the hope that I can show them the real reason why. The real reason why we gather on Christmas is not to gather around and open up some presents, but to hopefully point them to the reason, Christ. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord. So your story, uh, it's not a Christmas story, but how how do you want people to listen to it as a Christmas story and just kind of sharing the background of your family? Yeah. Um, how do you want them to hope after hearing that story? So... As I said earlier, I was thinking through all the pieces that I've written and how it can fit into a theme of hope and hope for Christmas. And I think that this story in particular, uh, what can emerge from it is uh, a theme of family, essentially. And that, that is, is what I said uh, briefly in my postscript, that ultimately, um, as we look at not just our individual families, but we look to the greater uh, perhaps family in, in church in Christ, but we also look to, to family generally as a, uh, our, in our world as, as human beings. We have to recognize that uh, who is our, our father, father, right? Who is our heavenly father? And reading about the gratitude that I have for my dad and the joyous and, and loving relationship, the fact that he was faithful there for me um, in a lot of ways. And he, to this day, is one of my absolute best friends. I have a great relationship with my dad. Um, looking at that as a reflection of the, the fatherhood um, of God and the fact that we are adopted into his family. So any gratitude that I have to my dad is a reflection of the ultimate gratitude I should have to our heavenly father. So as you guys hear about this and you hear about maybe dads who failed, but also dads who succeeded. We should recognize that what has our heavenly father done but succeed in sending his son Jesus that we may become a part of his family Mm -hmm. and not just a part of his family as the um, people of Israel had, but a part of his family, New Testament, having the spirit of God come and dwell in us and by that spirit cry out and call him the most intimate possible name, Abba. Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow, what what a place to... To close that segment, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. And uh, I don't know, I'll give you the final word, Nate. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd love to bring it back to, Peter, something you were talking about uh, earlier in, in the program tonight, which is just that, you know, it's it's been a hard year and uh, a hard couple of years even. And it's been a time that I think a lot of people have experienced isolation with the pandemic. Um, some people have experienced, you know, loss of loved ones and grief and that kind of thing. And I think that it's in those times that that we can start to wonder, like, is God distant? Um, if he's even there, like, does he care? Is he involved? Or is he kind of checked out? Um, and I think a theme that's kept coming back throughout tonight is this theme of, of God's presence with us. Um, your story, Kyle, of, of your dad wanting to, to break that cycle and like be present with you and have a deep relationship be side by side. Um, Cody's story, you know, even, even in the, the car on the side of the road in the snow, God is with him. And looking at scripture, uh, we see, I think, in just the key moments in Scripture, like with Moses in the burning bush, bush, God says, you know, go before Pharaoh. And he doesn't say it's going to be easy. He actually says it's not going to work. Like Pharaoh's not even going to listen. It's going to be terrible, but I'm going to be with you. And, and so the promise of God is my presence with you. You look to the end of the story, uh, Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. Um, the end of the story, God's promising, I'm going to be with you. And the the fullness of time, center point of history that we celebrate at Christmas, maybe most of all, is God saying, I'm coming. I'm going to be with you. I'm actually going to, going to take on humanity. Um, so I think that that for me, and, and I just see exemplified through, through all these artists, is just that, that beautiful truth of God's presence with us. And I think that that truth um, gives us hope amidst the darkness of winter. Kyle, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> Timothy Levin is up next. We're going to let them get set up, and then we'll close the show. Evening. by side at skies miles apart have you ever seen so far have you ever heard this heart but have you wondered if we're closer looking up Stargazing, we whisper words Spread out on paper skies Constellations made of verse Darling, my stars are yours and yours are mine Have you ever seen so far? Have you ever heard this heart? But have you wondered if we're closer looking up? Who knows the seasons that could 
take But here on my starlit front porch steps I'm almost content Cause I've never seen so far Though I've never heard this hard But I know we're growing closer Like many of us now, and like many of the characters in Advent, um, the character of Esther is in good company with Mary and Joseph and many other people who found themselves in a time, in a place that none of them would have asked to be in. And they were living in a space that was not good and was laden with promise. And each of them had something laid before them. Perhaps it was small. Sometimes perhaps it was immense. Um, And there's a lot of our own story that we find in Esther's. Her cousin Mordecai gives her some wise words in the midst of her reckoning with her, her mission in a moment. And I cannot imagine it could have been easy. But in wrestling, I wrote this song earlier this summer. It's called For a Time Like This. Could the Lord have planned To tear me from my friends Spending my days Wasting away A slave to a pagan king And could the Lord foresee This horrid king's decree Like sheep to their deaths My people will end their days In misery Born for a time like this Was I born for a time like this? Father, would I never would choose My God, will you use If I'm born for a time like this And could another go To plead before the throne 
I fast and I pray, but I lie awake with a terror I've never known. Born for a time like this, was I born for a time like this? Would I never would choose my God? Will you use if I? A time like this Oh, born for a time like this If I'm born for a time like this Father, give me the strength Help me be brave If I'm born for a time like this At, at the cry of a babe, angels will say he will rescue his people yet. Born for a time like this, what I cannot foresee. My God, could there be one born for a time like this? Born for a time like this. Thank you. I have two last songs to share with us together tonight. Um, a year, more than a year ago, almost a year and a half ago, last August of 2020, I got a call from my girlfriend's sister on my birthday, actually, um, that my girlfriend had been in a, a car accident, and they had airlifted her to the nearest hospital by her city, and that we needed to pray. They did not know how severe it was, um, and it was many more hours, and uh, more than a week and a half later, we prayed, and we hoped. Um, but her funeral was held uh, about a week and a half after I received that call. And that funeral concluded what had been up to that time the happiest, most hope-filled time of my life up to that point. And it was been more than a year, I would say, before um, things seemed different. And in the midst of Christmas of 2020... There's a prayer from a book called Every Moment Holy, and part of it reads, Lord God, in our midst are those who are rejoicing. 
in our grief, give us grace to enter into the joy of others. And I'm grateful, it was a gift to me then as it is now, that there is all the space in the midst of the heart of the nativity story for me then and for us wherever we are. And out of that I wrote this song, which is called Grace to Rejoice. call came through tearing up our starlit sky it was not great joy no angel voice that put our flocks and faith to flight if the Lord has come so close to us give us grace to rejoice if you know our ache and you mourn the same give us grace to rejoice where was peace on earth When the soldiers burst on our town with flame and sword No good will of man can return the breath of a young who
Thank you. Now is the time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Listeners, allow me to pray over you a benediction for Christmas I've adapted for you from the book, the book of Common Prayer. In the name of God, who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, we welcome you, grace and peace. We are gathered together to proclaim and receive in our hearts the good news of the coming of God's kingdom, and so prepare ourselves to celebrate with confidence and joy the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. 
We pray that we may respond in penitence and faith to the glory of his kingdom, its works of justice and its promise of peace, its blessing and its hope. As we seek to renew our allegiance to God's loving purpose, we pray for all who at this time especially need his pity and protection, the sick in body, mind, or spirit, those who suffer from loss of dignity or loss of hope, those who face the future with fear or walk in the shadow of death. May God of his grace and mercy grant to all his people a new trust in his good providence and a new obedience to his sovereign word, for to him is most justly due all glory, honor, worship, and praise. Christmas without end. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this special Christmas variety show. Remember to subscribe to Forefront 360 and Why God Why on your favorite podcast app so you can keep up with the shows in 2022. If you liked this Christmas show and want it to happen again next year, leave us a comment or a message on Instagram. We are at Forefront Fest. Until next time, have a happy new year and keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.